You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to take a, a, a little short break from the book of Acts. Uh, as you know, we've been walking through the book of Acts for uh, many weeks now. Uh, we're going to take a little break. Um, that was part of the schedule already. Uh, so uh, we'll have a new uh, sermon series schedule out for you. We are going to continue the book of Acts in probably three to four weeks. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend um, quite a bit of time in that book this year, but we will be taking breaks just like this one. Today I want to be in uh, Matthew chapter 20. What I want to do is I want to, I want to talk about and look at the hearts of the disciples as Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem for the final time. I think it's very instructive looking at what's going on in the hearts of the disciples at this particular moment because Jesus has his heart and his eyes set on Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, Verse 51, there's a, a pivot moment, a key moment in Luke's gospel where Jesus says exactly that. Or at Luke's narrative or Luke's account says that, that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem and uh, his, his hour was coming that he would lay down his life as a ransom for many. Uh, so take a look at Matthew chapter 20. While you're finding your place, I want to tell you a, a story about a young lady named Cindy. Cindy was a marathon runner, and uh, she, was, she was very good at uh, running long distance, and her heart's desire was to be able to run the Boston Marathon. And, of course, there's several qualifiers uh, for her times to be able to, to qualify to get into the Boston Marathon. And for, for months, uh, she's posting on Instagram about her desire, and, and she wants to get into the New York Marathon first because that can kind of set the stage for a qualifying time to be able to get into the Boston Marathon. Now, I'm not a runner, and I'm probably getting some of these facts wrong. So if you're a big-time runner and you're cringing right now, please uh, offer me grace. Um, I was looking at her story. She, she's been working out and, and trying to get her endurance up to where she can not only finish well in the New York Marathon, but also qualify to get into the Boston Marathon. And, and um, her, her Instagram account was full of inspirational memes and things that she was putting up to kind of get herself ready for this big run. Well, the day of the race, the New York Marathon, she's posting pictures of all of her preparations. She's, she's got all of her uh, things ready to go, and, and she's been doing her training, and everything was ready. And she, she runs the New York Marathon, and she does it in amazing time. She does it in three hours, 17 minutes, and 29 seconds. As a matter of fact, her pace was so good in the New York Marathon that when you compared her pace in the New York Marathon, it was almost twice as fast as half marathons that she'd already done. So when you compared her time to half marathons that she ran, and you compared that time to a full marathon, the New York Marathon, it was amazing. It was almost unbelievable how fast her pace was in the New York Marathon. And she posted on that day after finishing the New York Marathon and, and knowing that she had qualified for the Boston Marathon, she says, quote, I ran my heart out today. And I left everything on the course. All the training paid off, and I qualify for the Boston Marathon. And 
what a what a great story of uh, accomplishment. There's a guy by the name of Derek Murphy. Derek Murphy was also a, a marathon runner, and now in his later years in life, he no longer runs marathons, but he, he's taking up a, a kind of a new task. You see, Derek Murphy was not only a, a marathon runner, but he's also really big, in, big into statistics. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's kind of his background, is math and statistics and kind of watching things. And he's not only does he, has he been passionate about marathons for most of his life, but now that he can't run them anymore, he still watches them and engages and he also has another thing that he does. He, he has a, um, an amazing ability to uncover frauds within marathons. Something that I didn't know about until reading some of this is that how many people uh, are able to cheat in a marathon and make their times look better than they actually are. And something caught his attention about Cindy's numbers. The fact that she was so much faster in a full marathon than she was in a half marathon. And he began to investigate, and he's done this no, numerous times. If you look his name up uh, on Google, you'll see that there's been several times where he's uncovered uh, frauds uh, in running marathons. And so he begins to look at the imagery of the New York Marathon. There's cameras all along the course. There's, of course, news media that's covering it. So he begins to, to kind of look through looking for Cindy. Now, Cindy is about a 5'1" female. She has kind of long, dark hair, and uh, she's very petite, very small. And he begins to look for her on the course in the pictures, and he can't find a picture of her anywhere. But he did find something very interesting. He found her number that she had been assigned in the New York Marathon. She, he found her number that was assigned to her. The only problem was it was pinned to a six-foot-one uh, male, uh, a guy who'd been running marathons for many years. And what we what he finds out is that Cindy was only there for the beginning part of the marathon and the end part of the marathon, but everything in between, this other guy who happens to be a six-foot-one marathon runner uh, is running with her uh, pinned number. And also in that uh, uh, pinned number, there's also a little chip in there when she would cross each of the timing stations. The only problem is that she's not crossing them. He is. You see what? happens is is that Cindy is found out to be a liar. She's a fraud. And all of the things that she'd been posting and all of the things that she'd been talking about, and even on the day that she, she crossed the finish line, she posts that she had ran her heart out when, in fact, she didn't. You see, she was expecting to celebrate a victory that she never earned. She got caught up in wanting to be first and wanting to be noticed and wanted to be climbing that ladder in the marathon world and being seen for someone who was a very good marathon runner only to find out that she was a fraud. You see, the world standard, and I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've seen this lately in the last three weeks or four weeks of the pandemic. I don't know if you've seen this or not on the news, but there's a mentality in American culture, and I don't think it's just an American culture. I think it's, it's something that goes all the way back to the fall, and that is a win at all costs. Even if it means lying and being fraudulent is a win at all costs. And the problem that I want to draw your attention to today is, is that has crept into the 12 disciples. And it's crept into the 12 disciples at a key moment in their journey with Jesus. For three years, Jesus has been pouring into these men. And if you remember, he called them to fish for men. He says, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. But he's also preparing them to be shepherds to be shepherds in the New Testament churches. We've already been looking at the book of Acts that, that these men were being prepared 
to be not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the upper room, but also to lead the ministry and continue the ministry of Jesus and taking the gospel to the nations. But I'm going to tell you something. The, the, these 12 men, and of course we know what Judas is going to do. We're going to look at Judas this week in our evening devotionals, but the, these 12 men have got some issues. Some of those issues run deep, and we're going to look at some of them today. That what, what prompts Jesus to do some of the teaching that we see here in chapter 20. What, what brings Jesus to teach about the things that he's teaching is because he sees what's in the heart of his disciples. And if, and if this thing in their heart, if this issue in their, in their heart continues, it's not only going to divide them, but it's going to prevent them from doing what Jesus had called them to do and will empower them to do. And that is to serve. To not constantly be clamoring for position and fame, but, but, but these disciples, the 11 that will remain after Jesus defects and, and betrays Jesus, the 11 have absolutely have to have a mindset and a heart attitude and a motivation to serve rather than to be served. Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem. The disciples, as, as they're traveling with Jesus, to go to Jerusalem for this final time. The disciples are discouraging Jesus from, from going. They're like, Jesus, this is not a good idea. Because by this point, the anger and the hatred for Jesus had grown to such a fury, to, to such a degree that the Pharisees were already plotting his death. The disciples knew that going to Jerusalem during Passover probably is not the best idea if you want to have a long and happy life. But Jesus' mission was to go to Jerusalem at this particular Passover, at this particular moment, because this is exactly why he came into the world. Jesus told the disciples that, clearly, on three separate occasions. One of those occasions is today in chapter 20. He tells them that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he must die, that he must be handed over to evil men, and these evil men are going to crucify him, put him on a cross, and he's going to be lifted up for the world to see. And as a result, he will draw people to himself, and, and he's, he's going to die, and he's going to resurrect. But why is it the disciples can't seem to get their arms around that? Is, is it because it doesn't fit within their expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do? And therefore, they just they push it aside. They won't even listen to it. They won't even consider that Jesus has been right every other single time. Why would he be wrong in saying that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die? Jesus is preparing to give his life, but the disciples are clamoring for position. They are, they are looking at an earthly kingdom through earthly eyes, and as a result, they are, they are putting aside everything that Jesus told them was going to happen, and all they can see is an earthly kingdom with Jesus in charge and them serving at his right hand. Heart motivation can be a tricky thing, can it not? I mean, what, what motivates you to do things? It's tricky, right? I mean, think about it. Um, you, you, may, you may work harder at your, at your job, not because you want to do a good job, but because you know a promotion's coming up. You know there's going to be a position available above you. So you're, you're working harder and you're, you're doing more projects and you're taking on more responsibility, not because you want to be a good, solid, trustworthy employee, but because you want to position yourself for the promotion. It's a tricky thing, our heart motivation. 
you can surprise your spouse with a gift, maybe flowers or, or something special for your spouse. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking that the reason you're doing this is so in a couple of weeks, when this item goes on sale, you can buy it and not have to deal with any pushback. Maybe, maybe you are giving, expecting something in return. Maybe, maybe your generosity is only, only guided by, I will give as long as I get something in return. Now, you don't say that, but in your heart, you're thinking, I'm going to give this money or I'm going to give this time or I'm going to give this treasure to this person in need with the understanding that somewhere down the road, I'm going to expect something back from you. Serving, expecting to be served. Saying that you love someone only so you can take advantage of them at the right time. You see, motivation is a tricky thing. <laughs> What's going on in your heart that you can hide from everyone else? That, that can be a real tricky thing. And, and if we don't watch our motivations, and when we're following Jesus, our motivations can take us down a path that is absolutely the opposite of what Christ has called us to do. And here's the real touchy thing. Here's the real amazing thing about this is that with our motivations, we can fool ourselves into thinking that even wrong motivations are right. That I mean, in, in, in the country, in the culture we live in, you know, comfort is above all things, right? And so if I'm motivated by my own comfort and by my own things, I, I, can, I can take my motivation, I can, I can think that my motivation, even though it's wrong, and even though it's sinful, and even though it's against another person, I can turn that around and make it, all about me, and even justify my actions. So Jesus has got to deal with this, and I want to show you how he deals with it. I want to show you how Jesus deals with this issue. So I want you to back up into chapter 19, verse 27. Just one quick verse. I'm going to read it for you. This verse, or this statement by Peter, is in response to, to Jesus and his interaction with, with a wealthy nobleman. And in this interaction between Jesus and this wealthy nobleman about what it means to follow him, the disciples have this idea in their head that, that, if, that if this nobleman, Jesus says that it's very hard, very difficult for someone who has a lot of wealth and a lot of money to come into the kingdom of God. And he says that it's, it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven in verse 23. He even says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples freak out. And they go, well, who in the world can enter the kingdom of God then? And, of course, Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible, which Jesus says even a wealthy person can come to faith in Christ. Absolutely. But look at verse 27. Peter says this. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What, will then, what then will we have? Notice Peter's motivation here. Peter says, in response to what's going on with this nobleman, and, and Jesus is teaching about how wealth can, can become a God for us, and it's very hard for, for us to release that God, God with a little g, to, to follow the one true God. It's very hard for someone to, to let go of possessions and let Christ control their life. So Peter says, well, look at all that we've given up, Jesus. And his idea is, is that, Jesus, we've given up everything. We've given up our careers. We've given up our families. We have traveled all over Caesarea Philippi and all over Galilee. And we've, we've done all of this for over three years now. And Peter's thinking is, is that because he's given so much and he's sacrificed so much that he's got something big coming in return. That's Peter the spokesman. Peter is the one who has kind of stepped forward as kind of the leader among the twelve. And this is in his heart. So in chapter 20, 
Jesus gives a parable. And and I bet when you've read this parable, it, it offends you just a little bit. Because at the end of it, you're thinking, well, that's unfair. I'm not going to read the parable. I'm just going to tell you the story really quickly. There is a man. And remember, Jesus starts his parables out like this often. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So, so in these parables, Jesus teaches the disciples about kingdom principles. And I want you to understand, and I just want to kind of lay the foundation now, that kingdom principles, God's kingdom, those principles, are often, almost always, 180 degrees opposite of what the world standards are. And that's what's going on with the disciples. The disciples have, have brought in the world standards of what it means to be important, to be powerful, to use that power for their own purposes and their own goals. But, but Jesus turns their attention towards the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. He says, it's like a master of the house, someone who, who has a lot. He has a home. He has a vineyard. And that vineyard, the harvest has come. It's come time to harvest in the vineyard. And he needs workers to work in his fields to, to bring the harvest in. So like any good farmer or any good owner, landowner in Jesus' day, what they would do is they would go down to the marketplace, and hanging around the marketplace would be a group of people who are just looking for a day's employment. Oftentimes, in Jesus' day, people live day to day. A lot of the folks who were farmers and, and just trying to get by, they would go to the marketplace hoping that someone, especially during the harvest time, would hire them for the day so that they could earn enough money to support their family for maybe another day or another two days, and then they would show back up at the marketplace the next time they had need, hoping to find a job. So the, the vineyard owner, he goes into the marketplace, and he's looking for laborers. And he goes there, and it says in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which is a typical wage for a day's work in a, in a field harvesting, he sends them into the vineyard. But, but the owner notices that the vineyard has such a harvest this particular year that he needs more workers. So what does he do? He goes back down into the, uh, into the marketplace at 9 a.m. and he hires some more workers. He goes back at noon and he hires some more workers. He goes back at 3 p.m. and he hires some more workers and he agrees to pay them for their share of the work on that day. So they, all these workers come in at different times. There are some who start at very early in the morning. A typical work day during Jesus' day would have been 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, some of those guys started out early, early in the morning, maybe at 6 a.m., and then some started at 9, and then some started at noon. Some started at 3 p.m. And then there's this last group, last group of workers that comes in at 5 p.m., the last hour of the day. So get the picture. You've got some of the employees that have been hired for the day for denarius, They've been working probably since 6 a.m. that morning. And then you've got another group of people that came in at 5 p.m. that afternoon. So you get the picture. They're only going to work for one hour, those who came in at 5. And then it comes time to pay the laborers. Look at verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now that is a very important uh, part of this parable. So they're going to pay the laborers, but what they do is instead of starting with the, the ones who started early in the morning, they, they start with the ones who only worked an hour. And I think it was the way Jesus is telling the parable, this was intentional. If you can imagine the workers are all lined up, and maybe there's a, the, the, the servant of the owner is sitting there, and he's, he's handing out the money. And the guys at the back have been laboring since 6 a.m. that morning. 
All the ones that are in front of them have been laboring for maybe from 9 a.m. or noon or 3 p.m. Or the very ones in the very front of the line are the ones who've only been working for an hour. And you know what they're doing, right? The ones at the back are looking down to see how much money is being paid to the ones who only worked an hour. You know what they find out? They find out that those guys at the front of the line who only worked one hour are getting a denarius, a full day's wage for one hour of pay. Now, you know what they're thinking, right? They're thinking just like Peter's thinking. And the parable is set up especially for, for what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. The guys at the back of the line are thinking, well, if those guys are getting a denarius, then we're going to get more than that because we've been here all day. We've been working ever since 6 a.m. this morning, and if anybody's going to get more pay, it's going to be us. And each person that kind of gets paid, the line's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. The guys at the back of the line get up, and the first guy who was there at 6 a.m., you know what he gets? A denarius. Now, it's at this moment things change. There's a twist. There's a turn in the parable. It says, now when those, verse 10, now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, these last only worked one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, it's at this point, moment, when you read the parable, you begin maybe to think the same thing. Man, this is just, this is just straight up unfair. I mean, these guys worked more hours. Why should they get the same as those who worked only an hour? Listen to what the master says. But he replied to one of them, friend, notice that, friend. He's not, he's not coming down on them. He's not, he's not lashing out at them. He simply says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And here it is. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, wait a minute. What generosity? Now, from a, from a human perspective, from a worldly system perspective, we look at this and go, well, that's not generous. That, that's unfair. The, the guys who worked almost 12 hours get a denarius, which they agreed to, by the way. Versus the guys who only worked an hour and they get a full denarius. That's not generosity. That's unfairness. But that's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to get you to ask that question. The point of the parable is to get you to see that there is something about the kingdom principles that are different than the worldly principles. You know what that is? Jesus says here, and, and, and the purpose of the parable is this. This is to teach the disciples and Peter who raised the idea, hey, we've given all. We, we poured everything out. We should be getting something in return. And, and Jesus says this, the expectation in this parable was that those who had worked all day would rejoice at the fact that those who only worked an hour got a denarius. Now, that's completely opposite of the way we think about it, is it not? The idea of the parable is, is that those who worked all day, who agreed to a denarius, a single day's wage for a single day's, a single day's pay for a single day's work. That's what they agreed to. The idea is that in the kingdom, those who worked all day would celebrate the fact that the generosity of the master is such that those who only worked an hour get a full denarius. Is that how you were thinking about the parable? Yeah, me, me neither. Me neither, honestly. You see, 
God's kingdom, His principles are different at odds with the world. He says here, he says here, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first shall be last. Does that work by the world standards? Not at all. The world says you clamor, you claw, you scratch, you do everything you can to be first, right? You've heard the old saying that to come in second is just the first loser, right? You've heard that. Maybe you've said that on the ball field or something. Um, our understanding of how the world works is that we have to grab the bull by the horns. And if that means stepping on someone else to get it done, then so be it. If it means compromising our principles, then so be it. If, if it means hurting someone else or taking advantage of someone else, then so be it. This thinking is in the disciples, the ones who are going to to be the primary way that the church goes global. It's in their hearts. And if it's in their hearts, brothers and sisters, friends that are watching this morning, can, can we first admit that this could be in our hearts as well? Isn't it amazing how that Jesus is focused on dying in Jerusalem while His disciples are focused on an earthly kingdom where they have power and influence, where they have a place of position? Peter is not the only one. In this parable, the issue is, is the ones standing at the back of the line begin to compare themselves with the ones who are standing at the front of the line, and it's in that comparison that our, our earthly principles come to the top. It's something I call comparitis, and you can, you can get a really bad case of it right now, especially because you're spending a lot more time on social media than you were a few weeks ago because you've got a lot of free time now. And that comparitis gets really bad on Facebook, Instagram, because we see this imagery of how everyone else is living, and we have this imagery of what we think is the reality when, in fact, it probably is not reality. And we begin to compare ourselves to that person, and those worldly principles come to the top that we've got to claw, and we've got to scrape, and we've got to get more or better than what they have. And it absolutely erodes away the inner man or the inner woman. It's like a, it's like a cancer. It's like a... It's like rust that just corrodes your heart. Because when we compare ourselves to others, it destroys our gratitude for what we have. Right? I mean, you understand that, right? When we start comparing ourselves, all we see is the difference between us and them. That's what happens in this parable. The only thing they can see is the fact that they got a full denarius for work in one hour. That's all they can see. They can't focus on anything. They, they, they miss the point completely that they have received a denarius, a wage that they agreed to at the very beginning. They don't see that at all. And that's exactly what happens with comparitis. We lose all gratitude for all that God has done because we don't even see what God has done. Wouldn't that be a tactic of Satan? Would you not imagine that, that Satan would love for you to continue to compare yourself to someone else? I'm not skinny enough. I'm not muscular enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have the nicest car. I don't have the biggest house. I don't have this. I don't have that. We get caught up in looking at what they have versus what we have, and that's all we can focus on. When God is saying to us loudly, look at what you have, not what the other person has. And be grateful for that. Did you ever think we'd be in a time where people were hoarding toilet paper? Did you ever think we would be in a situation where 
people are clamoring and almost breaking out into fights and actually stealing and hoarding hand sanitizer. I know fear is driving a lot of that. But this time that we live in, and, and for those of you here in Lumberton and, and Robinson County, we've seen this, right? We've already seen this twice with two hurricanes. Uh, the hurricanes, that didn't last as long as this is lasting. But we've already seen this, haven't we? And hopefully we're learning some lessons through not only two hurricanes, but what we're going through now is that, that we are to be grateful for what we have, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus has something else he needs to teach these disciples because gratitude is one part of the equation, but there's another. And I also want to show you that it's not just Peter struggling here. Look at verse 20 in chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. When we look at the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, there's some interesting things about her that we can learn when we lay the gospel side by side. More than likely, from what I can tell, this is a woman by the name of Salome. Now, there are some ideas that, that Salome, when you look at John's account, when, when Jesus is on the cross and you've got John and you've got the women near the cross, there's a woman listed there as being the, the, the sister of the Mary, of sister of Jesus' mother Mary, if you go look in John chapter 19. When you lay the gospel side to side, there is some theologians who believe that not only is Salome the woman who is the mother of James and John, but Salome may also be the sister of of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if that's true, then James and John possibly could be the cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. Now, I know that's a, a lot of information. Not everybody is uh, convinced of that. It's just an interesting thought. I do believe that it is Salome because the Bible seems to indicate that, not only in uh, Matthew's account, but also in Mark's, in Mark 15. Here's the point. Their mother, along with James and John, approached Jesus. Now, in Mark's account, it's only James and John, but in Matthew's, uh, their mother is with them. And, and the mother makes an appeal to Jesus and saying, when you come into your kingdom, could, could my two boys have two prominent positions in your kingdom, one on the right and one on the left? We don't know which one she preferred to be on the right because that's kind of like the higher honor to be on the right. Uh, but in this context, she's looking at both the right hand and the left hand as places of honor, and she wants both of her sons to be in those positions. Now, you can imagine that they may be thinking the same thing Peter's thinking. I mean, James and John has, has left their fishing business behind, left their family behind, and forsaken all to follow Jesus. And, you know, we're, 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 they've, they've been faithful. They've been walking with Jesus. There's been some times where these two brothers who are called the sons of thunder, uh, they let their temper kind of come through a little bit. They're, uh, they're a unique couple of brothers. But nonetheless, they're coming at this point where they know Jesus is going into Jerusalem and what, a, what an appropriate time to position these two boys in a place where Jesus will pick them as his right-hand and left-hand men as the kingdom comes to fruition. But Jesus has an interesting response. He says, you do not, you do not even know, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And remember, the imagery of a cup has both within Israel's history and, and their understanding of a cup, it can be filled with blessing, 
that God pours out upon the people, or it could be the cup of wrath that can be poured out upon a kingdom or a people. Jesus is understanding the cup at this moment to be the wrath of God that He is going to take upon Himself upon that cross and all that is contained within Him going to Golgotha to lay down His life. That cup is filled with the wrath of God, not because Jesus has sinned, but because every one of us has. And Jesus is going to take the wrath, the full wrath of God, at the cross, at His suffering, in place of us. That's the cup he's thinking about. And he looks at James and John and he says, you have no idea what you're asking me. Not only do you have no idea what you're asking me, but I know the heart motivation because why you're asking. And the reason you're asking has nothing to do with suffering. It has nothing to do with losing your comfort. It has nothing to do with laying everything down at Jesus' feet. And it has everything to do with having power and control and influence and fame. That's why they're asking. He says here, you will in fact drink the cup, not the same cup that Jesus is going to drink. Only Jesus can take the wrath of God for our sins. But these two men, James and John, are going to suffer. James is going to be one of the first to be martyred among the apostles. John is going to be relegated to an island in Patmos, and he's going to suffer tremendously there for following Jesus, but he's going to live a long life. But both of them are going to suffer. Both of them have no idea at this moment the suffering that both of them are going to endure, and they have no idea that Jesus is going to go in there and suffer the way he's going to suffer, and they're only viewing it from what they can get. You see, that's a worldly principle. The worldly principle is get what you can get, climb what you can climb, do what you got to do, and by whatever means necessary. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. The other, the other disciples get wind of what's going on. And if you take the viewpoint that Salome is Mary's sister and that James and John are the cousins of Jesus, then, then, then if you view it from that lens, they're indignant because they're using their family connection to Jesus to try to climb the ladder and become first and second in the kingdom when Jesus goes in to Jerusalem. If you take the position that she's not, they're still indignant because they're using this opportunity, they're using this opportunity to better themselves. The disciples have an ambition. Now, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Ambition can be a very good thing. To, to want to grow, to want to progress. Those are good things. Those are, those are things that are connected to God's image in you. It's, it's only when we take that ambition and we turn it around for ourselves, only ourselves, and we take that ambition and we walk over other people, that's when it becomes a problem and moves us to disobedience. Jesus has something He's got to say in this moment. I want you to hear what He says. But Jesus called them to him and said, he calls the disciples around. This is a, it's one of those teachable moments. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They had a perfect example of that every day of their life. The Roman Gentiles who were the occupiers of Jerusalem, the, the, these men knew exactly what it meant for these Gentiles to lord their power over every nation that they had conquered. The Jews at this particular moment are being lorded over by Gentile Roman occupiers. They knew exactly what it meant for these Gentiles to lord their authority over those Jewish people. What did it look like? Well, 
they, they took enormous amount of taxes from the Jews of Jerusalem. They, they were in control of every high day that the Jews enjoyed in the city of Jerusalem. They controlled it. They even controlled the coming and going out of the city. They, the Romans were in control. Although they gave the Jews some freedom, freedom at the end of the day, these Gentile overlords were in control and had authority. They knew exactly what it meant for these Gentiles to lord over them their authority. But Jesus says to them, that's not how it will be with you. Verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you. And folks, here's the tension. Here's the problem. We, grow, we have grown up in a culture that says we grab authority and we lord it over others for our own gain. And all that we've seen in the last few weeks, people who are afraid of what's going on right now and scared to the very core, and their, and their next moves is to take control and, and get authority and to lord that over others, even if that means pushing someone out of the way in line at Walmart, if that means grabbing something from someone else, if it means wrestling and fighting over the last roll of toilet paper, we're, we're down with that because the worldly principles that we've adapted to is that get all you can get, get the authority, and lord it over other people. But that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, when we came into the kingdom of God, when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we surrendered every bit of that. Did you know that? At that moment, we became new creations in Christ. For those of you who've never put your faith in Jesus, the reason you haven't done that is because you don't want to give up the authority and the power. You don't want to give up to having control of your life. And you've heard enough about the gospel to know that for Jesus to be Lord of your life means surrender of your life. Completely and totally and fully. I got to see that this week. I got to see somebody surrender their life to Christ this week. It never gets old. You'll, you'll know who that is later on. But just this week, I got to see somebody wrestle with the gospel and wrestle with it and wrestle with it and ask questions about it. And I, and I got to see, I got to see this person come to that place where they let go of control. And they made Jesus the king of their life. And I got to be part of it. For those of you who are lost, you're wrestling with this whole idea of, of can I give up control? Can I let another authority guide my life, guide my finances, guide my marriage? Jesus says that it shall not be among you, that lording it over like the Gentiles do, that they knew very well. He says here, it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus takes not only the worldly principles that we've all grown up in, this connected to the fall of this world, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, all of this is connected back there, our pride and our arrogance, and we're born into sin, born into disobedience, born with wanting to grab authority and get all that we can get. He says, but in the kingdom, when you come into the kingdom, it flips all of that on its head. No longer are we seeking to be first. We're seeking to be last. Does that make any sense? He says, not only are we seeking, no, we're no longer seeking or trying to clamor to be great people, to be seen by other people as great. No, now we seek to be a servant of all. 
Verse 27, whoever would be first must be your slave. Powerful Greek word there, enslave, doulos. The Bible says that in Philippians 2, that Jesus leaves all of the kingdom glory that he had had in eternity past, and he lowers himself down, and he's born in Bethlehem as, as an infant. He grows up in Nazareth, a nowhere town. He, he begins his ministry. He begins his ministry in the Jordan River with this wild man named John the Baptist. And he, and he begins to go to people that no one else went to. He would, he would serve the lowest of the low. He would, he would call people to follow him from, from being fishermen and tax collectors and from all spectrum of, of walks of life. And, and Jesus models his entire life what it means to be a doulos, a slave, someone who puts everyone else above himself. And guess what following Jesus looks like? putting others ahead of yourself. Is that not what we need right now? And we've, we've got, listen, we've got doctors and nurses and EMTs and paramedics and police officers and people from, from all over, all walks of life who are putting themselves at harm risk. You want to see a good image of this kingdom principle? Take a look at those doctors and nurses who are putting on full gear to be able to go into a room and simply take a blood pressure of someone who is suffering from COVID-19. Jesus says that the kingdom principle is that others are first. And is that not what is needed today from the line at Walmart to, to, to your neighbor across the street who their only exposure to Christianity may be that of take, 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 take. Isn't it about time they have the experience of someone with this kind of kingdom principle who says, I'm just here to serve, I'm here to love, I'm here to provide, and I'll give you the last, of, the last toilet paper I've got. I'll give you the last can of food I've got because I want to make sure you're taken care of because in the kingdom, following Jesus means I put you first even if I don't know you. These disciples have to get this principle because if they don't get this principle and they're continually clamoring, trying to become first, they will never do what Christ has called them to do on the other side of Pentecost. Verse 28. Verse 28 takes us right into the triumphal entry. You, you weren't certain I was going to get there today, but I am. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, Jesus has the authority and the right at this moment to point all 12 of those men back to himself. He, he has the right because he's, he's lived it out in front of them over and over and over again. Think about Matthew the tax collector sitting there listening. He should have never been considered as a disciple, but Jesus not only calls him, but serves him and pours into him. In just a few days, they are going to be in an upper room. In John 13, they're going to be in that upper room. And Jesus is going to wash the feet of the disciples, including Judas. All through the life of Jesus with these men and all that's about to happen has modeled exactly what he says in verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served. He should have been served. 
He was the Son of God in regal power and authority and holiness and perfection. Everybody should have bowed at His feet. He should have never been born in Bethlehem. He certainly not shouldn't have grown up in Nazareth. He shouldn't have had to travel all over Galilee and not even have a pillow to lay His head on, but yet He did because He came to serve to not be served. And you know what He does for every person who puts their faith in Him? Ask us to do exactly the same with right motivation. He says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And here it is, and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life as a ransom. That particular word there, ransom, it's a Greek word. It's only used twice in the Gospels. It's only used twice in the whole New Testament. There are other variations of that Greek word, but here, this word is only used twice. It's the idea of the purchasing of a slave off of the slave market. All of us were born into slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to darkness. We already had a king. We already had a slave owner. It was Satan in the kingdom of darkness. That, that's, that's what we were born into. By default, by simply being born, you were born into the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus says, I have come to serve, not be served. And my greatest service, the greatest service that Jesus would perform was the very service he was called to perform, and it was by giving his life as a ransom, as a, as a payment to free those out of darkness and bring them in the light. Jesus' greatest act and his greatest act of service was about to happen. So in chapter 21, Jesus says, there's a colt that is ready for me. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, predicts that Jesus would do exactly this. Right around 500 uh, B.C. Zechariah predicts several things about Jesus. It's a kind of a book we don't read much about, but it's a powerful, powerful book. And it has several very clear prophetic statements about what's happening in this Passion Week. One of them is that, and it's actually quoted there in verse 5. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble. Notice that, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And, and Jesus is going to come over the Mount of Olives and he's going to come into the city, probably through the East Gate. And as he's coming over the Mount of Olives and down toward that, coming into the city, people are lining the streets and they're throwing palm branches down and they're going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do these people have the right motivation? Are they willing to accept this Messiah? Well, we find out that when Jesus gets into the city, some of these same people who are lining the streets will be standing in Pilate's courtyard yelling, crucify him. You know why that is? It's because the Messiah they wanted was a Messiah who would come in, kick out the Romans, and usher in the new kingdom of Israel with, David, with Jesus, the son of David, sitting on the throne. That's exactly what Peter was expecting. It's exactly what James and John were expecting. And their heart motivation was, is that we're going to clamor and we're going to get those positions. And the people who are standing on the sides of the road welcoming Jesus in, it's not as though they accept him and receive him as the one who's going to become the ransom. No, they are going to participate in the actions that bring him to the mission that would have been carved out in eternity past, that he would die, that he would die and bear the punishment of the sins of all humanity upon himself. Even there in that 
joyful moment. Even in that moment of fulfilling prophecy, the people standing on the edges of the road have the wrong motivation. So let me ask you this morning, what's motivating you? Jesus says that, that we are to be motivated by two things. Gratitude, thankfulness for what God has given us, not, not looking at what everyone else has, comparing ourselves to them, and clamoring for power and authority to get all we can get. No, no Jesus says that the kingdom principle is gratitude. And then out of that gratitude comes the next kingdom principle, and that is servitude. Serving other people. That's based upon a gratitude for what we have and being willing to share and to give and to support and to love, not motivated by what I can get, not motivated by, by trying to take advantage of someone, but motivated out of the pure love that we see modeled in Jesus. And that's what he expects for every person who follows him. I want you to know right off the bat, I want you to know as clearly as I can put it, I don't have that potential in me by myself because my flesh lives by the worldly principles. It wants to clamor. It wants to look for fame and fortune and finances and how I can climb the ladder. But you see, when I came to faith in Christ at age 16, I became a new creation. The Holy Spirit living inside of me. And guess what? The gospel that saved me is the gospel that empowers me to live out this kind of life that Christ has called me to be. You know what it requires? It requires obedience and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. I believe He's been prompting you to this kind of life of gratitude and servitude. I think He's been prompting you. I think the Holy Spirit, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I think the Holy Spirit has been prompting you because you've been seeing some stuff, haven't you? And there's been that prompting in your Holy Spirit that tells you this is not kingdom principles. Surrender to Christ and He'll change your life. Surrender to Christ and He'll make you into a vessel that lives a life that's not focused on ourselves. Father, You are good. Everything about You is good. Your principles are perfect and whole. They don't need me to add anything to them or take anything away. Father, it's such a time as this right now with all that's going on in our world. What powerful testimony of the gospel could it be that your people who are called by your name, ransomed, purchased, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if, they, if we would live a life of gratitude and servitude, gratitude for what we have, servitude to our, our neighbors, serving them, maybe even giving the last of our provisions to make sure that they're cared for and loved. All for the hope of, all for the hope of raising the gospel, all for the hope of being able to share the love that we found. Father, this is how the early church did it. It was through acts of kindness and love, not forsaking the gospel. And that's how thousands upon thousands came to know you and walk with you. That plan hasn't changed. So Father, in this time of trouble that we find ourselves in, May your people called by your name love as you love and serve as you serve. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a need this morning right where you are, right where you are this morning, you can respond to the Holy Spirit that is prompting inside of you. You'll know it. 
if you're lost and he's drawing you to the cross, you'll know it. What you need to do at this moment is yield to it. If there's something going on in your life for either your gratitude or your servitude, and the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict and bring to your remembrance places this week, maybe even today, that you've not been grateful and you've not served others, don't, don't, don't pull back from that. Lean into that. And let the Holy Spirit do the work that He wants to do in your life. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.